Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include Afghanistan, murdering your spouse, and finding your biological parents. Our first speaker will be retired Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie of the Canadian Army, who served as the Commander in Chief of Staff of the Canadian Army. Andrew previously served in Afghanistan. It has been a tumultuous week as U.S. troops, personnel, and citizens evacuate the country. I want to learn from Andrew what exactly happened on the ground. Was this loss of Afghanistan inevitable? What was the response of our allies to our surrender? Why were we left alone to handle a long-term nation-building in Afghanistan? And what were the consequences to the Afghan people in the long run from a Taliban victory? There's much to talk about here. Our second speaker is Robbie Ludwig, who is a nationally known psychotherapist and a regular speaker on CNN and Fox News. I met Robbie when our children, Jonathan and Jamie, started dating seriously 18 months ago. Robbie will be discussing her book, Till Death Do Us Part, Love, Marriage, and the Mind of the Killer Spouse. Many marriages end in heartache and divorce, and very few result in the death of a spouse. Yet this topic is of keen fascination to many of us. I want to learn why some of us murder our former lovers and also why we care so much. Our final speaker will be one of my best friends, Darren Schwartz, who will discuss his own adoption and his 30-year search for his biological father. I want to learn about our universal longing to find our kin and our desire to love and be loved by our parents. Our first speaker today is retired Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie of the Canadian Army. Andrew, please go ahead. Thanks, Larry. In 2003 and 4, I was the deputy commander of the International Security Assistance Force, headquartered in Kabul. Spent about eight or nine months there in that role. And then every four or five months, I went back for a week or two as a major general and then subsequently as a lieutenant general when I was the commander of the Canadian Army. Did that for about seven years. So I had not a unique perspective, but a, a deeper understanding than most of the various scenes and scenarios that were playing out over the course of time in Afghanistan. Um, first and foremost, this is a defeat. And our nations lost because they lost the will to fight the good fight. They were tired of expending time, blood, and treasure. As well, our nations lost because they stopped listening. They heard but they weren't actually listening to what was happening on the ground to the extent that they should have. And a whole bunch of nations got locked into a scenarios based on time or sequence of events, which if they didn't happen, by golly, they're going to press forward and meet those timelines. Look, soldiers can do a variety of things in counterterrorism, in counterinsurgency, or in nation building. But the big thing that we can do is buy time, buy time for eventually a negotiated settlement between the protagonists, even though it may go to negotiate with terrorists or those who commit terror, even though it may drive certain persons to frenzies to actually deal with people who are trying to destroy the nation that you spent so much time and effort to build up. But eventually you got to talk, you got to sit down and negotiate. And that didn't happen, at least didn't happen under the right circumstances. For those of us who served, I believed it was a fight worth fighting. We were sent by our countries to do so. We fought that good fight. 
We attempted to support and protect those Afghans who wanted basic rights for women and girls, wanted to listen to music or play soccer or football. We were willing to fight, and we did, to give them the opportunity to live more peacefully than the Taliban or those that had preceded them. But this is an ancient land, Afghanistan, and it's seen armies like ours come and go. It's seen coalitions wax and wane. Matter of fact, they watched with cold eyes Alexander and his armies move through. Alexander and his armies did not enjoy the experience, especially on the withdrawal. Does this sound familiar? There are some lessons to be learned, many. And here's some I would suggest. They're not definitive, but they're worthy of food for thought and some discussion. First and foremost, the U.S., the United States, is tired of doing the heavy lifting essentially alone. They ask for help and have been asking for help, increased contributions to multinational security missions overseas, and I'm not convinced they got it. The discussions with the Talib started under former President Trump, who was directly negotiating through his agents uh, with the Taliban, and then with President Biden, who drew a line in sand and eventually concrete, saying it was going to be the end of August and then 11 September when the last of the U.S. forces were going to leave. To everyone's surprise, actually, to their surprise, a whole bunch of us predicted this was going to happen six or eight months ago. As soon as the decision was made to stop supporting the Afghan troops on the ground and that a definitive closure date was there, in this case, end of August and then later 11 September, the Afghans in the field, the soldiers, lost hope because they lost their heavy fire support. The fighter bombers, the long-range artillery, the attack helicopters, medical evacuation teams, and quite frankly, they could see the writing on the wall. And their culture has been, when they have large, powerful forces assembling that are willing to die to complete their objectives, a lot of them are not adverse to changing sides or at least going neutral. Second big lesson is that without the United States, and their magnificent armed forces and their world-class unmatchable logistics, difficult and complex international missions, quite frankly, aren't going to get done. The third lesson is the world is a lot more dangerous and complicated than some socially progressive folk might wish for. And the next lesson is you can't ignore what happens overseas, and certain things are worth fighting for. And the final lesson perhaps, is what happens over there can impact us here, especially in this multi-wired, multi-dimensional world that's constantly changing and evolving. And if we do nothing, all that is required for evil to spread is for good men and women to sit idly by and do nothing. If we do nothing, more will die, and more people will leave their places of origin to seek safety and security elsewhere, which will create further international instability on which others will prey. So some brief thoughts. I think that prepares or that terminates my prepared remarks. Larry, over to you. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, you know, Biden's recent statements uh, during his press conference when pushed. Um, he said that he was this is what he expected. This is what you know he, he 
he was not you know particularly surprised by it. Um, how do you feel about the decisions that went on um, in our security uh, and the national security level to make to make these decisions and decide that this was the, the right decision? Well, I've inter- I've had the opportunity to interact with at the time uh, Senator Biden who was extraordinarily knowledgeable about Afghanistan. This is when I was the army commander for Canada. And every time I go to Washington, which was a lot, there'd be interaction with senior uh, members of the Senate and Congress. So he certainly knew and he knows that of which he's talking about. No doubt about it. Um, I think he was driven by the political agenda vis-a-vis the United States, where I believe understandably the typical American citizen is getting sort of more than tired of the forever wars. And Afghanistan has been going on for a very long time, especially in such a dynamic and vibrant society as that which we find in the United States where perhaps attention spans aren't as long as in other places. Oh, for example, Afghanistan, where they can be decades in duration. So I think he made up his mind that it was time to leave. I think he laid a date down which later became cast in concrete. And despite a variety of other of his uh, senior members of the National Security Council, who themselves have firsthand knowledge of Afghanistan, having fought there, he was determined to set the example and not bend. Was he as surprised as most others by the absolute chaos that ensues? Probably not. But a lot of people were, though a bunch of us predicted that this is exactly what would have happened. I mean, what else would you expect to happen when essentially the guarantor of security, sustenance and firepower to the fighting forces of the Afghan army says, right, we're done on a certain date. What is the relationship? What is the relationship between um, the American military and Biden? Uh, specifically, um, you know, years ago I had uh, for book club General Stan McChrystal, um, who was relieved of duty during the Obama administration um, when members of his staff um, undercut Biden's um, position and his qualifications when they visited, uh, when the Rolling Stone reporter visited him in Afghanistan. Uh, are you aware of that uh, situation? And was Biden able to improve his relations with the military in the United States and elsewhere? Well, I'm very aware of it. I've spent 35 years as a Canadian soldier. And in that period of time, you spent a considerable amount of, t- amount of time fighting or serving as peacekeepers alongside American troops. So point number one. Point number two, the president of the United States is the commander in chief of the United States Armed Forces. So he has a legal and moral um, a position which is unique at the top of the pyramid. As a matter of fact, the combatant commanders, so in this case, uh, Stan McChrystal, whom I know, a hell of a soldier, by the way, um, he was a direct report to the President of the United States when he was wearing the hat of his combatant commander. Uh, So I, well, of course, uh, the President has the authority to remove generals for a whole host of reasons, or actually just if they lose confidence in that general's ability to successfully execute the president of the United States intent. Vis-a-vis President Biden's relationship with 
the generals, as you call them. Uh, well, President Trump certainly wasn't great. Uh, so I think anything's an improvement in that regard. And don't forget, President Biden's been around Washington for a couple of decades. He's well known uh, to them, to the more senior of the generals, who each have a certain amount of Washington time. All right, we got a question uh, from Ruth Mandel. She's with the Department of Anthropology uh, at, at, the University, at UCL. Um, she asked a question about nation building in a country like Afghanistan. Um, is that folly to begin with because it really isn't a nation? It's really just a collection of ethnic groups. Your thoughts on nation building in Afghanistan as a project? Well, 1,500 years ago, and you can see them when you're flying in a helicopter low over the, some of the deserts. You, 1,500 years ago, there were a, a complicated system of irrigation canals, which would take the spring runoff from the mountains, the Hindu Kush, and push it out onto the, the water, push the water out onto the plains to allow crops to grow. So in one sense, though nation building and Afghanistan, you're quite right, has not been a coherent nation except for one or two brief periods of its history, perhaps the most recent, uh, uh, less than 100 years ago. Um, it, if, the, if a significant proportion of the population want to better themselves, want to make sure that there's a difference in how their sons and daughters can have expectations for a more peaceful or prosperous life, and to do that, they're willing to invest in the concept of nation, then I think it's in all our interest to give them a hand. Now, how much and under what circumstances? That's a tough question to decide, but that's why we've got international bodies to help us make those sorts of decisions. It was the right thing to do, considering the, the size and the numbers of folk who were clamoring for change. We have a question from Alan Hershkowitz. Here's what he asks. Um, he wonders whether or not uh, making a democracy out of Afghanistan was a worthy project. Um, we tried in Iraq. Um, we tried experiments in Libya um, and Afghanistan. It doesn't appear to be working too well uh, in the Islamic world. Is there something that's specific about uh, Islamic nations that makes this more challenging? Is it cultural? What, what's going on there? I'm not sure it's specific to Islamic nations. I do know that um, there's a, a very strongly held belief amongst uh, pro progressives, those who who have a, a sort of an air of, of sophistication and a desire to, or almost a relentless desire to try and better themselves and others that democracy is uh, the most efficient and effective and um, egalitarian form of, of, of rule. And I, I happen to agree with them. There's also a flip side, a darker side of the argument, which if you speak it aloud these days, you tend to get yelled at by just about everybody that certain nations may not be ready for democracy. In other words, they don't have the same judicial standards. They don't have the same cultures in terms of discourse and debate. And uh, in nations that are recently fractured or there's significant hostilities between tribal groupings or ethnic subdivisions, it can be it can be tough. As a matter of fact, I know several democracies that are incredibly sophisticated and successful 
uh, where there's still significant tensions between linguistic groups or, or religious groups. So nation building as an idea is a good one. It's as always is the case, the devil's in the details and how much do you apply? And the whole idea of the de democratic values, how much do you discern in terms of the populations willing to adapt them and adopt them? That's a tough one. You mentioned um, specifically protecting Afghan women and girls and their rights, uh, their ability to play football and be educated, you mentioned in your prepared remarks. Um, but when we went to Afghanistan, we went there um, to kill Osama bin Laden and, and make sure that that, that country was uh, unable to project force against the United States uh, and its allies. Um, to what extent should uh, the demands change to morph into a, a more of a, a either a, a pro women or pro democracy or pro human rights and away from a, a more simplistic, understandable um, objective. Look, uh, what this recent uh, debacle in Afghanistan and debacle in the sense of how it ended uh, is going to be studied in staff colleges and universities for the next hundred years, amongst others that will that have happened and, and will happen in the future. Um, it started with counterterrorism, like you've identified, hunt and kill. And actually, the United States, in the main, assisted by some others, did a hell of a good job at uh, targeting those specific individuals that had either contributed to 9-11 or were engaged in supporting those activities in which um, the protagonists of 9-11 were allowed to flourish and thrive. Then we moved into counterinsurgency, dealing with those who were trying to overthrow, overthrow the government, the remnants of the Soviet withdrawals, and then what happened after the Taliban were there last time, and demonstrated such savagery towards women and girls. And then we started to get into nation building because a whole bunch of folk quite rightly looked around and said, well, we could do more. We could do more to help this group. We could do more over here. Why aren't girls going to school? Why don't we have female infantry officers in the Afghan army? Why is it that there's no women in the shuras, let alone the nascent uh, parliament? And you, at, at some points, you had counterterrorism activities alongside counterinsurgency efforts with nation building all wrapped up into a complex ball. And it's easy in retrospect to say, well, we should have done one or the other, a light touch with just the hunting and killing a medium touch with counterinsurgency and not so much nation building. Um, difficult though, when you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of people who want just a little bit more to get a crop in, that is an opium that could actually contribute to foodstuffs or more legitimacy. So that, that's, that's, that's going to be something that they're going to talk about in staff colleges for a long time. You'll notice, well, just, uh, Larry, I've not answered the question. It's okay. So, um, you talk about staff colleges and learning from our mistakes, which I think is always a wise process. Um, but what this most reminds me of is Vietnam. Um, you know, we came with certain, with certain objectives. It morphed. We lost our willingness to fight. And then we had this incredibly embarrassing uh, withdrawal um, and a power vacuum that resulted in 
uh, loss of rights and loss of life to our allies who had supported us. But another way it was similar was that there were allies of uh, North Vietnam in the area where uh, we couldn't take the war to them and they had constant ability to resupply. And in this example, I'm thinking of of Pakistan um, and their willingness to uh, provide certain elements of support to the Taliban. Uh, To what extent um, is Pakistan responsible for, for this victory by the Taliban? I think they and a bunch of other neighbors have been enablers for a very long time. And just as is true of what happened in Vietnam, let's not forget one of the trigger points for the American forces going in was the disasters that befell the French army. Um, Pakistan certainly has had a role to play. They themselves have issues with their neighbors, which are complex and dangerous. And at best, I think they've tried to see and neutralize Afghanistan as being able to operate against elements inside Pakistan. And their northwest frontier region is um, extraordinarily problematic, and it's home to a variety of massive displaced person refugee camps, which themselves have turned into training centers for young Afghan, mainly men, who cross the Pakistan-Afghan border and have killed our soldiers in large numbers and Afghan civilians. I want to ask a question about um, multilateral, multinational support for these sort of objectives. Um, Canada was uh, a leading uh, force uh, in Afghanistan. Um, The United States has limited means. Um, we can't fight multiple wars at the same time. Um, how does Canada view itself um, and its role to support these sort of activities? And and why did Canada cut and run a decade before us? What what motivated their decision to no longer want to fight the fight, as you called it, the good fight? Why did Canada give up the will of the good fight? Um, was it too expensive in loss of life and in treasure? as you said, um, and then, you know, Canada wasn't alone. There were the other uh, allies of, of the West also sort of slipped away. H- how does the United States, um, and also at Afghanistan, when we went to fight in Iraq, we said, okay, to our allies, you take care of Afghanistan, we're going to go fight a different war, it's up to you, but then they they sort of disappeared. How, how, do, how do we think about maintaining multinational support for these sort of exercises um, and why at the end of the day is it, is it just the United States who's left in the room to, to take the chopper out? Uh, let, me, let me answer that last question first. Um, look, I, the United States is not perfect. No nation is. But as a soldier, as a pragmatist, as someone who's studied my profession at a variety of universities and staff colleges around the world, I'm kind of glad the United States is the world's superpower. And I'm kind of glad that it's been, uh, though sanguinary at times, it's been much more benevolent than if you look through centuries gone by when there was one or two nations that were vastly more powerful than others. It was pretty unpleasant for everybody else around them. Um, The United States has tried to help 
they haven't been shy of committing blood and treasure, to use your language, to solving really complicated and wicked problems. The strength of their economy, of their democracy, um, their, their enthusiasm, their energy has been infectious, as has their culture for pretty close to a century. There are near-peer competitors that are merging strongly. All know who they are, especially China. Uh, Russia, the Russian bear is diminished, but it's still got claws. And the United States is and has been the world's policeman for at least 80 of the last century, 80 years of the last century. And I, I think the rest of us, you know, everyone loves to criticize, but I, you know, I think a whole bunch of people secretly are kind of grateful. That's true. And that's why whenever there's a multinational problem that's wickedly complicated and lives are being lost in large numbers, people say, well, where's the United States? And the Americans have tried to build consensus at multinational fora, be it the United Nations or NATO or a variety of other regional uh, organizations. And at times they've had to go it alone, usually quietly. Um, but someone eventually has got to do it. The flip side of that argument is no, no, no one has to do it. And just rely on the innate common sense and, and ability of folk to get along and it'll eventually settle out. Well, tragically, it doesn't. Well, what's very different, uh, multi do that different multilateral example, Andrew? Um, so what are the reasons that Biden gave for leaving Afghanistan uh, was to reallocate resources, to pivot, to use the Obama word, uh, to Asia with, for our resources? And the United States, with its coalition of partners, which they refer to as the Quad currently, uh, India, the United States, Australia, and Japan, uh, plan to contain Chinese power um, in the South China Sea uh, with the current uh, objective of maintaining the independence of Taiwan. Um, but stories like Afghanistan uh, illustrate the flaws of multilateral organizations or combinations of states working together uh, on a mission uh, that will take time, energy. How do you think about um, the, the quad as an ability to contain Chinese power and does um, giving up on Afghanistan undermine uh, future missions? Well, let me just build on your question and point out to use a naval analogy and full disclosure, I'm an army guy, but uh, if the intent is to try and contain China using the quad, with the strategic objective of the preservation of Taiwan and of course other like-minded nations by the abrupt and hurried withdrawal, which has led to a questioning of America's will to contribute to international stability missions. Uh, and as well has sort of sent a shudder through a bunch of allies that have come to rely on the steady presence of the United States. Um, I noticed that there's a picture of the head of the Taliban and the ambassador of China to Afghanistan in a variety of newspapers. And let's not forget that China has a border with Afghanistan, just in the Badakhshan province to the north. So China's ability to uh, assist with mischief that may arise out of Afghanistan um, is, is above zero. Right, they have the potential to do that. Will they? We don't know. 
But if we don't have folk there, we certainly won't be able to influence what happens, at least not directly. And the impact of what has just happened in Afghanistan, the ripples of that will be felt for at least a generation or two in the region, if not further afield. We got a question from a mutual friend of ours, Alex Graham. He asks, um, did the diversion of U.S. forces to the invasion of Iraq doom the Afghan mission at its birth? No, I don't think so. And a lot of my professional colleagues will disagree. But Afghanistan started out as being a light touch. The counterinsurgency moving into, sorry, counterterrorism moving into counterinsurgency. It wasn't until nation building really took off that you had the uh, demand for more troops to uh, essentially help with the stability operations inside the various provinces and districts. Uh, generals always want more troops, been one, ask for more all the time. Um, it's the, up to the political masters to decide what is reasonable and what impact not exceeding to the general's demand will have on the probable outcome of the war. And there's a variety of political factors you noodle around with that. But no, I don't think it had a, I don't think it had a, a terribly negative effect. The, the, the big issue is that the good fight was fought for 20 years. Uh, women and children in Afghanistan for those 20 years uh, in many cases, were allowed to spread their wings and fly, much more so than in the past. I think all that's going to come to a shuddering halt. Um, but the real impact of Afghanistan will be felt amongst those who are watching the issue with cold, hard, and ruthless eyes, um, people who are not necessarily our friends. Why did Canada leave the, the coalition? Lost the will to fight. That simple. Just like has happened now with the United States, just happened to us sooner. And by the way, when I say lost the will to fight, perhaps I should rephrase that. The political elite in Canada lost the will to fight. Soldiers didn't. And I suspect the average Canadian in the street was quite proud of what their troops were doing. Um, not only in fighting and protecting those who were seeking a better life, but also some of the nation building activities like building schools for, for girls and and you know, helping plant crops and veterinary training to people taking care of animals, and the list goes on. Uh, and that's How almost exactly about... what does happen in democracies. You, the, the, the political elite lose the will to fight. Uh, there are uh, a lot of NGOs that ended up in um, Afghanistan. Um, my friend Roy Stewart started a NGO in Kabul. Um, and as I understand it, those ten to 15,000 American citizens who remain in Afghanistan, I assume predominantly worked at NGOs trying to improve the quality of life uh, to the Afghans and build institutions. Um, wh why do you think that we hadn't really considered um, how to get those people out earlier? Why did we wait to and you know, this very sketchy way of getting these people out um, how do we not plan uh, the end game very well? And oh, we'll see with that. Yeah. First of all, I've met Rory. I had the privilege. He's, he's a remarkable fellow, a true, a true yeah. gentleman, a true adventurer. And, uh, and he actually walked across Afghanistan shortly before I, you know, I would, if I tried to do the same, I'd make damn sure I was surrounded by several hundred of the best soldiers in the world with air cover. So quite a guy. Uh, the 15,000 remaining Americans, um, 
it, it's tragic what's happening in and around them. Um, I believe the State Department for the last month or so has been fairly vocal in trying to warn people that this was possible. But to get to the root of the question, why wasn't it better organized for the end game? I think people had a sense that shortly after the Americans withdrew their air power and the technicians to support and fix the machines that provided that air power, uh, all of whom were American contractors, that the end would not be far away. I just don't think they thought it would be that soon. And as is often the case, you know, it, it it's not, people think more of the journey and not the end. And there's a certain amount of denial and people sometimes under those stressful circumstances, and especially in Kabul, they hear sometimes what they want to hear, not what they should be listening to. One of your responsibilities was being a, a senior commander with NATO. Um, and that's just a, a, another multilateral organization whose purpose is, is to defend um, you know, Western Europe, Canada, and the United States. How does that organization um, able to adapt and morph to deal with issues like um, Afghanistan or provide support for the Quad in case of an invasion of Taiwan. How how does that organization work and uh, can it be effective outside its original goals and objectives? Yeah, uh, NATO was set up, as you know, as a defense coalition, essentially focused on preventing the reoccurrence of war specifically nuclear war and the designated enemy and the most likely at the time being Russia, the later the Warsaw Pact. Under a specific article in the constitution of NATO, if an attack is made um, on one of the member states, then the other member states of NATO have an obligation to assist in their defense. In this case, it was determined correctly that the attack originated from elements trained and organized within Afghanistan. And so when the United States went in, they invoked that and asked allies to help and uh, most did, including Canada. And by the way, I still, I haven't gotten around to answer your question about the details of the Canada U S relationship. I'll do that at the end. Um, NATO. And I was part of that first force commanded by a NATO three-star. I was his deputy as a German three-star. I was a Canadian two-star and was able to help in a variety of areas, ops and stuff that happens at night and all that kind of good stuff. Um, it, it was a transition. It was complicated. It was cumbersome, as coalition warfare often is. But I think any general with you know, operational experience in a contemporary theory will tell you it's better to fight with allies than with none. Because at, at the general officer level, you have to be aware of the, what you're trying to achieve politically. You have to understand that the application of force is there to achieve certain specific political objectives. And um, the more voices you can have around the tables of the world, the better when it comes time to come with solutions and as well burden sharing. Andrew, I'd like to end on a note of optimism. Um, this is a challenging one. What are you optimistic about as it relates to uh, the U.S. mission in Afghanistan? For 20 years, uh, people were given the opportunity to better themselves. And uh, two generations, maybe even three, of women and girls became police officers, helicopter pilots, doctors, members of parliament, artists, 
robotic engineers, uh, soccer players, and the list goes on and on and on. That spark has been reignited because it was there, you know, 50 or 60 years ago as well. And, and no matter what happens, and it's going to be tragic and awful and bloody, and it's just going to make, uh, it's going to be repulsive what is going to happen there in the short term. But um, that flame is there, and uh, it's my hope that, um, you know, the, the cycle will, will turn and uh, there'll be progress probably 10 or 15 years out, if not sooner, because like happened last time, the Taliban are not one single group. They're united in an ideology, actually a, a, a unique interpretation uh, of, of, of a specific religion, and they are um, essentially adopting the same moral attitudes and ideas um, that existed six or 700 years ago. They are fiercely independent. They are professional um, um, warriors, not trained soldiers. They're not unified by a code of service discipline. They don't really respect authority that well at all if it's outside the religious sort of stream. And they are all tribal members. And those tribal tensions pardon the term, Trump all, they will eventually collapse under the weight of their tribal conflicts. And that's when this flame can perhaps come to life again. Andrew, thank you very much. Um, we now go on to our second speaker. Uh, and this being a variety show, uh, we are now going to move quite far away from uh, the tragedy going on in Afghanistan today. Our next speaker is Robbie Ludwig. Uh, she's a psychotherapist and a TV regular on CNN and Fox News. Uh, she will be discussing her book, Till Death Do Us Part, Love, Marriage, and the Mind of the Killer Spouse. Robbie, please go ahead with your six minutes. Okay. Uh, in that case, we'll come back to Robbie in a moment. Um, we're uh, we're going to go to our next speaker, which is Darren Schwartz. Um, Darren is a very good friend of mine, and he was ad adopted as a child and has been seeking his biological parents um, for the last 20 to 30 years. Um, Darren, why don't you go ahead and we'll rejoin Robbie when she gets back on uh, in a few minutes. Darren, Absolutely. go ahead. Can you, hear me, can you hear me okay, Larry? Yes, thanks, Darren. Perfect. Um, okay, as long as I can remember, I was adopted. I never knew my heritage, but... I really never thought about it. I didn't look like anybody else in my family, but it wasn't an issue. It did not consume me. Um, I was raised in suburban Detroit by a doting Jewish couple, Maureen Greta Schwartz, and there's lots of love in my life. Unfortunately, my father died when I was 11. So at that point, it became uh, important for me to find who my birth parents were, specifically my birth father. Uh, an interesting fact is that most adopted children have fantasies about who their real parents are, and they're typically grandiose. So whether it's an actor or astronaut or president, no one imagines that the real parents are middle management. Uh, in 1990, when I was 21, a senior at Michigan State, I decided to look for my birth parents. Uh, I called the adoption agency in Pontiac, Michigan, that did my adoption, and they connected me with Marilyn McAllister. I introduced myself, and to my incredible shock, she said, yes, I remember you, and I remember your father, meaning Maury Schwartz. She had literally done my adoption when 21 years earlier. Uh, but all she gave me was a non-identifying biological information, which she sent me by mail. When I received it, it stated that my mother, birth mother was Lutheran, 
um, some information about you know her medical history and how many siblings she had. And again, to my surprise, my birth father's information listed that he was Lutheran and in similar information about him. I'd always been told that my birth father was Jewish, my birth mother was Lutheran. Uh, it, it didn't matter that it was if my birth father was Lutheran, it was just a big, a big surprise. However, a few days later, I got another letter from Maryland that said, Darren, I'm so sorry we made a mistake. There were two names in your file. And what had happened is when my birth mother went in originally, she went with her mother and she was embarrassed to say that she didn't know the real birth father. So she gave a name that her mother knew. So there were two names in the file. But at that point, that was, that's all I could get. But I said to Marilyn, Marilyn, you can't by law give me the name of my birth father or my birth mother, which she said, that's correct. I said, but can you give me the name of the person who is not my birth father in the file? And I don't think she'd ever been asked that question before. And she said, yes. So she gave me that guy's name. His name was Dennis. And I figured I could talk to Dennis and maybe backtrack and find information about my birth father. So I, I gave Dennis a call. Um, and uh, he said, I think I'm your dad. I think it's me. And uh, based on the time frames of when you were born and when you were conceived, um, he said, I think it's me. So I went in. And I, I met him and we talked and we, uh, we embraced as, as father and son, uh, met his family and I shared with Marilyn that I think I found my birth father uh, or, or I did. A few days later, I got a call from a very agitated birth mother who said, I told him that's not the name of your birth father. I said, I appreciate that. I'm just doing what I can do. Could you please give me the name of my, um, of my birth uh, father, um, and she relented, and she ultimately told me that his name was Tony. We'll say Smith. His name's not Smith. It's um, Tony Smith. And at that point, all I could really do um, was mail all the uh, all the Tony Smiths in the country. And now, uh, uh, this is by the way, I, I, I've skipped forward a bit. This is now the year 2000, and I made all, mailed all the Tony Smiths in the country, basically, a, "Are you my daddy?" letter. I did not get any replies. And at that point, um, the trail was dead. So um, fast forward now to 2016, Ancestry.com was a thing. I done, did the test and I did not get any hits. There were no close relatives whatsoever. Um, it did, however, confirm that I was 50% Jewish, which was, a, uh, which was interesting because I didn't know for sure until then. However, again, the, the, the trail was dead. In 2019, I did 23andMe. And if anyone knows how the, those tests work, it'll give you the um, relatives uh, and their names, at least on ancestry, and what percent you're related to them. I didn't get anything that was, that was close. About four weeks ago, I logged on to ancestry.com. And um, to my shock, I almost fell over when it said Dave Smith. First time I'd ever seen uh, the Smith name as a potential cousin. I reached out to Dave. He had just done this himself. And he also had not known his family, but four months prior, when he did this, he connected with all the Smiths. He said he was down to help and he will get back to me. Uh, he texted me a week later and said he has information. We got on the phone. He said, Darren, I know who your father is. I was in the ninth hole of Belvedere Country Club in Charlottesville, Michigan, and I almost fell over. He said, my father's real name was Ricky. When it was a nickname, he left the country in the early 70s. And he, uh, and he is alive and well living in Norway. 
with uh, two sons, uh, two daughters and a son. I was floored. This information uh, had come from Ricky's sister, Bonnie, my aunt, who he had met. They didn't know about me. She did not know if she was going to call and tell Ricky yet, and she didn't know if she wanted to talk to me yet. I thanked Dave from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I chipped on and took a 15-foot gimme for par. Um, a few days later, I received a voicemail. You know, I will do my best to imitate the accent. Uh, hello, Darren. This is Tony. You Sam, your father. I'm trying to reach you. I don't know how to get a hold of you. Please call me. I was paralyzed with a combination of emotions I cannot describe. I had three thoughts. Oh, my God, this is my father I've been looking for for 32 years and I've wondered about for 53 years. Two is a Norwegian accent, which seemed super cool. And three, I'm already in trouble for not calling him back. So I called him back. First thing he said was, Darren, I did not know. Had I known, I would never have let you go. And that was a powerful, incredible statement that I'd, have, I'd waited for my entire life. And although that was profound, for some reason, the next thing he said made me break out sobbing, which was, everybody in the entire family is so excited to meet you. So his story is he left the country in the early 70s, traveled up and down the Mexican South American coast, surfing and playing music. He was a singer songwriter. He said he had a private concert for the Maharaji and he partied with Mick Jagger. He wound up in Norway and has lived there for 50 years. He has sent me some um, of his songs that I'd say is a combination of Cat Stevens and John Denver. We've spoken many times. I Snapchat with my new sisters every few days. I've talked to my father many times. I plan to visit him and my new family in October if COVID allows. Thanks, Larry. It's fantastic, Darren. Um, can you, uh, before we expand on your, your relationship with your father, you mentioned um, that you did speak with your birth mother, um, yes. and she was a little bit resistant. Um, yeah. Can you ex explain uh, what she had to say, why she didn't want to have a relationship, and what that meant to you? Yes. Uh, thanks, Larry. Well, she, her birth father never knew. I believe that they were very religious. Um, so the only person that knew was, was her mother and she was away at school. She was a freshman at Michigan state. So, you know, there was, you know, her family wasn't seeing her a lot. Um, and so, and she had kids, she had a family and she didn't want that to be, um, to be broken up. I think her time, her kids were probably, you know, uh, early teens. And, um, I felt very rejected. It was very upsetting, but my, because my father had died and my my Maury Schwartz, you know, he's my dad, my father, he was always my hero. I wanted to, in a way, kind of replace him, which I know seems unrealistic. But the one thing she said, and she said it multiple times, is um, I gave you life. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't give you more. And I've come to really uh, appreciate and honor um, those words. You know, it, it's incredible, actually, uh, that, that she was so aware that she could give you life and no more. Um, what, what should we be thinking about in the terms of, of women that give children up for adoption? Is that what we want them to do? Um, is, is that a, a fair expectation? And that when we do go seek out uh, these parents and, they, and they've moved on with their lives, um, does it make adoption that much more difficult? Um, you know, it's a very interesting question. Uh, I'm good. Um, oh, you're good. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. Sorry about that. So we, um, so we here's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry about that. The, the answer is that, 
Um, I, I think that she did what she could um, and she was young. Um, and I think that as an adoptive kid, you know, like all kids, all you think about is yourself. Um, and as you grow up, you kind of realize that it's not really like that and the world's different. Um, so I will tell you, honestly, I was very frustrated and very hurt and angry uh, at that moment. Um, but like I said, I've come to really appreciate um, what she's done. The, the, the way to think about it, I don't know. I think that's every person's individual um, opinion, I think. Um, you were very clever, Darren, in terms of manipulating uh, Ms. McCallum. Um, you know, she, she, I, you know, they had certain rules, and the rules were simple. Um, her job was not to give away the name of the birth mother and not to give away the, of the name of the birth father. Uh, and then you said, well, if that person in my file is not my father, could I have his name? And she willingly gave it up. Um, did you act smarter? Is, did that get around the original intent of the organization, which was to protect the mother and father? How do you think about um, your your ability to break through? Yeah, and, and I think by manipulation, I think you mean, um, you know, the caring, thoughtful approach. So I, um, I, uh, I think that, well, here's what I know is that since 1980, I was born um, in the late 60s. I think in 1980, at least in Michigan, every family or parent that would give a child up for adoption are presenting with a, a waiver, meaning when the kid that you're giving up for adoption is 18, do you authorize that child to, to reach out to you? And I don't know what the percent of, of uh, parents that actually do that are, um, but it didn't exist when I was, when I was um, you know, when I was that age. Um, so um, I think that their job is to protect the parents, but I think just knowing what I just said about the law, I think that that means that there's also an understanding that there's going to be a desire for children to reach out and try to find their parents. Um, so I think it's, I think it's a little bit on both sides. You know, there's technology is what really changed the game here after 30 years. Um, yeah. Your example of 23andMe and Ancestry.com provided you a list of relatives that allowed you to sort of fill in the blank to, to, to find, you know, Tony, your father. Um, and there's going to be a lot of surprises about who your, you know, who your real biological father is, even within right. marriage. Um, how do you think about, or I have a cousin of mine who, you know, donated, um, to a sperm bank and has multiple children through that approach. Um, yeah. There's going to be a lot of surprises and discovery about parents, uh, biological parents um, in the near future caused by this technology. Is this a, a source for good? Is it a source for bad? It, how should we think about this, this changing dynamic? I think that, um, I think that it's, I, I've already heard, I'm sorry about that. I've already heard multiple stories. Uh, I think my dog looking for his adoptive parents. Um, I've heard multiple stories already, and I'd say that several are not so good. And you, know, you have parents that you're know, people that gave up a kid for adoption, and now they're in their 40s or 50s or 60s. You know, their oldest child is you know 30, whatever it is, and then now a 35-year-old kid comes out of the woodwork. 
Um, so um, I've heard those stories. At the same time, I have heard wonderful stories like mine. Um, and I've, oddly enough, mine is both. My, you know, I would love to if, to talk to my birth mother, but she wouldn't do it. And my birth father is this amazing story where he's, you know, they've embraced me and, and vice versa. So I think the technology is incredible, but I think there's going to be, and people on here have probably heard both stories, but there will absolutely be um, some pain as well as some joy. Um, there's this constant universal question about nature versus nurture. And uh, as you've met your father, um, what have you found similar? What have you found different? And, and how would you explain your connection? Uh, you know, he's, it's incredible. Um, um, first of all, nurture. My birth father is incredible. Um, he had a great sense of humor. Um, many people who I agree with also think that I'm very funny. Um, I agree. My birth father, you know, that, that's Maury Schwartz, who is not my, not, you know, biological father. Um, however, um, my, my birth father is a singer-songwriter. I'm, I'm a very poor singer-songwriter, but it's always been a passion of mine. Uh, so I think I got the passion, maybe not the skill. Um, uh, he's um, he's zany and funny. Um, I think similar. He collects things as I do. I collect lighters, vintage glassware. Um, and and when he became a professional, because he did not become a professional musician, uh, his profession in Norway was uh, working with startup businesses. And I've been part of eight early stage um, companies. Uh, he scuba dives. We both went to Michigan State. Um, I'm guessing he got a higher grade point uh, average than I did. Um, what would you advise someone who is uh, adopted to do, uh, given your experience? Um, was this a worthwhile journey, um, given the pros and cons of going through all this? I also kind of find it rather miraculous that you were able to find Tony, given that you know, he left the country and lives in Europe. Um, yeah. how, how do you think about the challenges ahead for someone in the same shoes as you? Well, I, I think it's a personal thing. And I think that, you know, the first, I, I think the first thing that, that has to happen is does someone who's adopted want to find their birth parents? Um, I, I don't think that's necessarily a, a hard and fast rule. I have a very close friend of mine who's adopted and he said, well, I, I don't know if I want to find my, my birth parents, my birth mother. I feel like it'd be an insult to my mother, um, which I think is, was a very profound thing because he came from, you know, his background, his background, mine was mine. Um, so I thought that was very interesting. So I think it's your own, you know, it's your own personal, uh, um, personal journey, you know, that I think you're going to go through. Larry, what was the second part of your question? I apologize. I don't know. I don't know. What, what do you think is... Um, what is universal about your experience? What, um, why is it to be of interest to, um, you know, our, our, the general public? What is it specifically? What is it about seeking your biological parent that speaks to all of us? I think what's universal is the feeling of being connected, a feeling of belonging. Um, and that is universal. And for me, I, you know, I think my, I think again, in general, adopted people have that curiosity. But for me, I think that was really accelerated by the fact that I'd lost my, you know, my, my father who adopted me. Um, but before that happened, you know, I, I was never really an issue. I think at, at some level, I felt kind of proud of it, like somebody wanted me. 
And then, but I think some people feel the opposite. Someone didn't want me. So mm-hmm. I think the answer, Larry, is people want to be connected. They want to be loved. They want to be part of something. Well, I have uh, Robbie Ludwig on the line as well. She's a psychotherapist. Robbie, you want to you want to join the conversation? What, what do you make sure. of this uh, universal desire? Oh, you know, it's really interesting. I, I you know, I, I think it is, you know, wanting also to see people who look like them. You know, that there is that visual reminder also of who do I look like, who do I belong with. So they say psychologically that people who are adopted are kind of born with this sense of abandonment. I don't know if that's true across the case cases out there. Um, and I've met people who were adopted who did not want to search for their birth parents because they so loved their adopted parents. I think it makes sense to do whatever works, but it also makes sense to be prepared for the worst-case scenario as well. Darren, how much do you look like your biological father? A lot. He also is very (laughs) good-looking. But they... Dave was one of the heroes of the story because I called, you know, him and he had just gone through this and he's like, I'm on it. Uh, he talked to, so my aunt, apparently Bonnie, who's the one that kind of got this information. And um, during that time before they were deciding if they were going to connect me with my birth father, they sent a picture. And, uh, and when I first got the picture, I was outside. I couldn't really, you know, sun was glaring. I looked at the picture like, who's sending me a picture of me? And it was him. So I absolutely uh, looked like him when I sent it to my my family. You know, they all almost plotzed, um, which is actually the word one of my older aunts used, um, which is Yiddish for almost falling down. Um, so and that was, you know, and Ruby, I think you're right. It, it was it was an amazing piece that had always been missing. I got to look at anybody, you know, from my family, my adopted family. So I agree. You know, within days of discovering who your family was, um, you were able to meet your Uncle Ted and play golf with him uh, at the country club across the street from where I am. How was it like meeting the first person uh, from your extended family, and what did that, your sense of, of what that would mean for the meeting your rest of your family? It was amazing. I, I had my second conversation with my birth father, which was with the, the, the family in Norway, that this, the second day after first contact, we had a Zoom and we saw everybody. And moments after hanging that, hang up with that, I got a call and it was, hey, Darren, it's your Aunt Bonnie. And so that was my father's sister. We talked to her for a while. And then I hung up that the phone and I got another call, uh, Darren, it's your Uncle Ted. And we talked, um, and I was like, Uncle Ted, so all of a sudden I've got people I got to talk to. Um, <laughs> he's a golfer, and he says, I said, where do you golf? He said, I golf at Sunset Valley in Highland Park. Sunset Valley is two and a half blocks from my house. He's been golfing there probably for five or ten years. I mean, I'm sure I was the golf course with him at some point. Um, and I thought, you know, I said, let's get together, and said, how about golf? I'm like, I, I guess so. Because how's Tuesday for? I'm like, Tuesday's great. And within like three days, I was on the golf course with Uncle Ted, who's giving me all the, you know, all the backstory of the family. And it was, uh, it was interesting because I actually now I think have a have a higher feeling of a sense of kind of responsibility in an odd way, um, even though these you know these people are new to me. Um, 
but it was it was pretty uh pretty amazing. Darren, um, I like to end on a note of optimism. What uh, what do you have to say that's optimistic about both your own family and the role of finding um, your biological parents? Well, I think the the most important thing, or one of the most important things we haven't talked about, is my my family, my the the family that adopted me, and all my cousins and aunts and uncles, um, and. You know, I didn't really, I didn't need to go find my birth father to, to find love and, and belonging. They, you know, they all, you know, these are the people I grew up with, my cousins, which are like my brothers and sisters and, and aunts and uncles. Um, and what, what's also important about that is that they were totally supportive. When I told some of them what was going on, they all cried and were, you know, uh, filled with joy and excitement. And um, I, I think ultimately the, the takeaway you know, whether you layer in what's going on with COVID and everyone being at home and just the world being upside down is I think that what's optimistic is people and our world and communities have a, a really high capacity um, for love and, and taking care of their family. And I think that's really, uh, to me, the takeaway, whether you find your adopted family or not, or whether you're adopted or not. Darren, thank you so much. Um, we we move on to our final speaker, uh, who I introduced earlier, uh, Robbie Ludwig, uh, and this is a topic that is uh, where it starts as love and ends uh, in death. So this is a discussion about uh, Robbie's book about killing your spouse. Robbie, why don't you start? take us away? Thank you, Larry. A woman's life is safer with a stranger than with a man she knows. Think about that for a moment. One out of every 10 people murdered is by an intimate partner, and seven of those 10 murdered are women. Over the years, many of these cases have attracted national attention as millions of viewers and true crime aficionados try to understand how one spouse could kill another. As an incurable romantic, when I was asked to write about this subject, what fascinated me the most was this question. How could someone fall in love with and marry his or her killer? I was curious if there was some unconscious suicidal wish lurking behind this partner choice. But this wasn't the case for most of the homicides I studied. The more striking similarity amongst these ill-fated victims was an idealization about romance. Blindsided by love, the capacity to see the red flags just were not there. Violence is a dark contrast to what many of us still believe marriage is supposed to be. For the cases I discussed on TV and in Till Death Do Us Part, it was not uncommon for these doomed couples to appear happy and in love. Very often, they were the love at first sight couples. No one would ever have predicted marital homicide was around the corner. There's a dark side to all relationships. Culturally, we're taught the romantic ideal is reality. And the quest for romantic perfection is a powerful drive. But the truth is we all marry people who on some level are unknown to us. And part of what fascinates us about these couples who reveal their dangerous side is that they seem so much like us yet they're not. There's a myriad of reasons for each type of intimate partner homicide. No two killings are exactly the same, 
but each marital killer shares an inability to neutralize their rage and aggression and ultimately decides to act on their homicidal fantasies. Given our time frame, I'm going to focus on some of the motives behind the pregnancy killer. Expected mothers are more likely to die from murder than pregnancy-related medical problems. The same myths that airbrush the realities of marriage are also impact our ideas about having children. Pregnancy can bring a whole host of strong emotions, and not all of them are positive. Thoughts like, I don't want to have a baby. Now my life will be over. It can also represent the death of one's youth and freedom. The Scott Peterson and Chris Watts headlines brought national attention to the unpleasant reality pregnancy can be a dangerous time for some women. It's hard to imagine an act more horrifying than killing a pregnant partner, even worse when that killer is her husband and the father of her unborn child. In some cases, the birth of a child marks the end of a hedonistic time in a man's life. The days of seeking pleasure without having to answer to anyone are over. These men don't want to be held back by a wife or a child. Approaching fatherhood can sometimes trigger depression, an unfounded obsession with health concerns, and in the most severe cases, suicide and or homicide. And if this wife got pregnant against her partner's wishes, the male's aggression factor increases. Abusive husbands may want to harm the fetus because they feel jealous over the attention their partner is getting. Or they feel neglected and no longer a priority. They know any threat to the unborn child will upset the mother. They falsely think targeting the fetus will return this lost attention back to them. In some cases, the abuse from the male partner is triggered by the stress brought on by the pregnancy, like worries over finances. The pregnant woman is more tired and may not want sex, getting her spouse to feel abandoned, replaced, and rejected. Some men feel pregnancy challenges their idea of manhood, which doesn't include taking care of babies. For Scott Peterson and Chris Chris Watts, the the Colorado man who killed his pregnant wife and two children, pregnancy symbolizes a loss of freedom to live a carefree life on their own terms. They believe their charm and good looks would help them get away with murder. After all, who would believe such attractive, normal-looking guys could do such a heinous thing? Scott and Chris, felt their wives were interfering and blocking them from living the life they deserved to live. Their wives made a choice to get pregnant, and now it was time for these husbands to make their choice to get rid of the person who was stopping them from being successful, happy, and free. Scott and Chris came first, second, and third in their world. No one was going to get in the way of them authoring their own life even if it meant their wives, and in Chris Watts' case, his entire family had to die. Underneath the rage and despair is a grandiosity, the feeling they had the right to change their fate by any means. Homicide offered them a life do-over that was too appealing to pass up. For 
Scott and Chris, their lethal philosophy was, if you're not for me and only me, you're against me. And that simply was not okay. This egocentric mindset and primitive problem-solving skills were the impetus for these murders. There's a quote, love is blind, but marriage is an eye-opener. The truth is we don't really know our partner in depth until we've lived together for a long time or have been married. Killers can be quite lovable. The non-homicidal aspect of their personality can be charming and pleasant, successfully splitting off the dangerous and unlovable parts of themselves when they aren't angry. There are many reasons why someone might kill, including hatred, jealousy, fear, greed, or revenge. In some cases, these killers don't want to kill their partner. They just want to get rid of the unlovable parts and keep the rest. Murder fascinates us because the desire to kill comes from the deepest part of our psyche, living inside our unconscious mind. It's nature's way of helping us to survive. Murder doesn't happen out of nowhere. While it's hard to predict marital homicide, there are signs to keep in mind. For the homicidal male, poor ideas about women, high frequency of violence, depression, use of drugs or alcohol, possession of weapons, and threats to kill and or to commit suicide. When we idealize success and what it means to be happy, the frustrations of life can make any of us vulnerable to anger, and in its worst form, violence. And for spousal killers like Scott and Chris, murder is seen as a reboot, a solution for emotionally surviving, resolving interpersonal conflicts, and getting another chance to achieve their life dreams. Thanks, Robbie. You're welcome. Let's, I, I, yeah, let's start right out with a question about why it fascinates us so much. Um, you know, there's a whole industry of television programs which have almost a daily show of, of some um, spousal killing. Mm-hmm. The O.J. Simpson trial, for example, um, this took on you know, global implications of a of, of a marital dispute gone wrong. Um, why is why do spousal killings uh, become such front page news? What is our fascination? Why why do we care so much about it? Um, what is the universality of, of it? Well, I think the truth of the matter is we go into relationships thinking this person is going to help us become who we want to be, that this person is going to take care of us. And so within any any long-term relationship, there's disappointment. And I, I think these people who act on their murderous feelings, in some ways they're extreme versions of all of us. We've all been um, in relationships where at times we wanted to to kill the partner or just wanted to, um, you know, seek revenge or whatever the case may be, even for couples who divorce. You know, they're higher functioning than these people who actually murder. Um, But I think it's very identifiable. And there is something vicariously thrilling about watching somebody behave in this primitive way 
when we can understand maybe the feeling or the mindset, but no better than to act on it. You know, I hear that uh, half of all marriages end in divorce, but very rarely does it get uh, to be murderous. Um, what? Why do? Why do certain uh, spouses choose murder over divorce as a solution? You, you kept mentioning rage um, and inability to control emotion. Is it? Is it a motive failure? Um, what is it that? Um, the legal solution isn't the right way to go. I would get a lot of questions when I would talk about these high-profile, uh, you know, marital homicide cases. You know, why didn't they just get divorced? And really, you know, divorce is expensive. It sometimes takes a really long time. A person's status changes. Um, there's a lot of financial loss, and in some cases, um, you know, a person's Standing in the community is lost. And so there are a lot of risks associated even today for getting divorced. And the people who end up killing, I think in part, have personality disorders where, uh, you know, their needs come first. And they truly see their partner as getting in the way. The partner is the obstruction to them living a happy life and their coping skills are not as highly developed. They're more primitive. So for somebody who's having, let's say, an argument with their partner, um, sometimes humor can really reduce that tension in the room or the ability to communicate better so that each person can see the other's side. I think with the people that we see who murder, they don't consider their partners a three-dimensional human being. They become demonized in the way, and it's almost like a very concretized idea of how to resolve a solution. You know, the partner's in the way, get the partner out of the way, voila, magic, now they can live a life of freedom, or now they can be with the person they really love, or um, now they can be truly happy. And so it's a distortion in thinking in a in addition to not being able to neutralize the anger that is going on within them. One of my favorite chapters in your book uh, was on the black widows. Um, These were women who um, had killed a number of their husbands in the past, uh, usually for the insurance money or for money that there had always been very little love in the relationships, and this had been sort of a a diabolical plan from the beginning to uh, get the insurance money. Um, that seems very different than the other examples you gave of rage and aggression to plan subterfuge uh, by the Black Widow. How do you compare the Black Widow and the pregnancy murder? Well, I think the Black Widow is basically a con woman. And the fact that she targets her partner shows a deep rage about relationships, however that gets expressed. Um, So in the cases I I wrote about in my book, there was a deep rage towards men. And so they go into the relationship planning their revenge and also seeing these men as basically ATM machines. So the anger is there. Um, it's just, it's like 
they go into a situation where they already hate who they're with. Uh, they just have an agenda. Uh, I remember when I was hosting, co-hosting Scorned on Discovery ID, there was this woman and all the men were seduced by her and she would take their money and run and, and just go on to live her best life until she found her next victim. And what was so striking in Discovery ID, everybody looks like a Victoria's Secret model. So, of course, the protagonist was uh, this gorgeous woman. So you could see how men would fall in love with her and be victimized by her willingly. And then they did a split screen, and this woman looked like, oh, my God, like, like everything you would never imagine a man would love, right? And I gave her more credit because she was obviously able to seduce somebody who was vulnerable. And very often, con people go after people who are lonely, who are desperate. They have a sixth sense, if you will, about who would, um, you know, where they could seduce. So there is a rage there, but it's more uh, the goal is greed, the goal is uh, retaliation, only it's probably more transference when you think about it. Whatever their hate was towards, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they were sexually abused um, or beat up or saw something that got them to believe men were evil and deserved to be punished. The other example of angry, murderous women was uh, when the man had an affair and yeah. really um, pushed it in their face to a level where they could no longer control their rage. Um, you know, there's there are lots of uh, there are lots of affairs out there. Um, what is it that why did why certain women crack and others don't? Why? When you these are very public cases that I'm sure you've had to you've dealt with on your television programs. Why did these women break more than others, and why do we find it so scandalous when they take matters into their own hands to often not only kill uh, the man but also his adulteress? Yeah, I'm thinking of Betty Broderick. She was the perfect yeah. example of that, and. You know, I think for someone like Betty, she really envisioned life looking a certain way. And her husband became her property. And there was a dependency there. In order for Betty to feel good about herself, she needed to be with this husband who she really feel felt she helped him to become successful, to be the person uh, that he became. And what did he do to thank her? He was disloyal and went with a younger woman. I thought it was interesting in her case how she killed her ex after stalking him and threatening that she was going to kill him uh, and his new wife, that she ki killed her ex and his new wife in their bedroom. And I think that symbolized a lot, that she did not – want to see her ex have a new life with new children, um, and it's interesting to me that it happened in that location. And when you saw interviews with Betty Broderick after she was in prison, she was knitting, it seemed like she was still happy that she killed her ex. Why? I think the feeling was, if you're not going to be with me, then it will be till death do us part, and I'm going to kill you. You do not deserve to live if you can't honor 
your agreement or um, keep your promise. But if you scratch the surface again, there's some kind of impairment because there's no resiliency. The, the idea to move on and actually have a successful life with another love who can love her differently or better did not exist. So many of these people, you know, again, because of a dependency or an uh, inability to have a resiliency that's productive, uh, they end up being in prison. And I think in Betty Broderick's case, she had no regrets. I, I think her rage was that deep. You mentioned something at the beginning of your talk I wanted to expand on a little bit, which was, um, you know, when we get involved in relationships, when we get involved um, in, a, in a marriage, we really don't know the partner at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're blinded by love. And it's, frankly, it's true of, of, of all of us, of all of our marriages, of all our relationships. Um, we get to be intimate very quickly uh, without a, a lot of knowledge. Um, there's a lot of risk that we take, and for many of us, it turns out fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why, why focus on those few rare bad apples? Why can't we focus on the positive? How should we think about risk taking, and how how would you advise our children in in terms of mm-hmm. of taking these risks? You bring up a great point, and <clears throat> I've often said, the healthier you are as a person better chance you have of choosing another person who is also healthy. So very often just if someone goes into therapy and works on themselves and can think through, you know, what does a healthy relationship look like? What are the characteristics of somebody who is trustworthy, somebody that I feel I can grow with? You know, that is tremendously helpful in terms of using your head and your heart to be in a situation that is, rewarding, fulfilling, and non-murderous. But for people who kind of go into relationships, they're young and naive and just think feeling is everything and don't think through, who is this person? What, What are their past relationships like? You know, to get more information that would fill in the blanks. Um, You know, and it leaves them vulnerable to somebody like uh, an abusive partner who very often comes off as a romantic hero. They really do put the woman on a pedestal uh, at the beginning. There's something called love bombing where they buy flowers. You know, they act like these men in the movies or uh, in soap operas. And for somebody who is unaware, they might, you know, see that as perfection. So I think that's one thing. Uh, but really, truly, the ability to, to, to kind of raise awareness that there's a difference between romantic fantasy and reality. And the more that we can get that idea across, then it's really like armor. It's helping people think through the most important decision in their life because who you choose as a partner impacts everything. Everything. So I think there probably should be some skills taught in school um, or, uh, you know, uh, kind of imparting that knowledge of get healthy, be a whole person, and then, you know, you'll find someone who is more like-minded, and that will be who you resonate with. 
you know, sometimes when we hire people for jobs, uh, we ask for references, uh, namely your previous places of employment. But when we're dating, we never ask to talk to your old girlfriends or old boyfriends uh, before we continue. I, we would view the question as absurd in this face. But that seems to be what, what you're suggesting. Yeah, like what were your past relationships like? And if there's a lot of hate towards women or a lot of hatred towards exes, you know, that should be something to think about. Like if if you, and, and this is the challenge with online dating, because you don't really have the advantage of a community who can share information about who you're dating. But I think it's through conversation and using your intuition, asking questions, uh, how somebody feels about their parents or relationships in general. And people will tell you about themselves, especially at the beginning, because they have nothing to lose. And so think about what somebody is telling you. Don't dismiss the red flags. Consider the red flags. Darren, to bring you in the conversation, do you have questions for Robbie? I do. You said something else that was very interesting, that you should seek relationships that are, are fulfilling, rewarding, and non-murderous. I think that's a, that's a fair bar. Um, but I guess my question is, are there, have there been any scenarios or instances where there is that, where there's a murder, but the murderer gets off because there's some kind of justification? And I don't mean, I don't mean self-defense, but there's some kind of justification, whether it's psychological abuses proven or something else. I'm sure there there are and there should be. Um, and it used to be called like battered woman syndrome and they would consider that in the court of law. And sometimes it works out and sometimes not. But there is a gender bias uh, where actually women are considered less murderous than men. But in some cases it is life or death for the woman who is being battered and beaten and threatened that her husband is going to kill her. If in a moment she feels it is life or death, it's going to be him or her, then what choice does she have in that moment? And very often, you know, murderers feel that way anyway. They feel like their partner is draining the life from them and that it's a survival. Now, maybe it's um, a distortion, but the feeling is it's me or them. And the survival instinct kicks in. So I think people do look at those cases very carefully um, in an attempt to be fair. You know, what was going on in the home? Because some homes are war zones where people's lives are at risk. And it does need to be considered, and hopefully with the right lawyer it can be, and the right judge or jury. I want to just continue on Darren's question about punishment for a second. Um, so in reading your book, you often had the the punishment that was dealt out by the court or the jury. Mm-hmm. And in many of the cases, it was life. And they were even considering the death penalty in a number of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it seems bizarre that we – I mean – you're not going to kill your spouse multiple, you know, kill your next spouse. Um, you're not really going to feel this sort of rage and aggression generally. Um, why don't we, uh, should, are we over punishing spousal killers? 
Should there be much uh, less time in jail associated with it where we should more, more fear uh, the random killing or the, the kidnapping and, and murder scenario? Or are we trying to tell, send a message to the community, look, uh, we find nothing more sacred than marriage, so killing your spouse is going to be the ultimate penalty. Um, how do you think about punishment and, and spousal rage? Uh, you know, of course, each case is different. Do I think life for Scott Peterson is a sound sentence? Yes, I do. Because there were recent, there used to be this thinking that if you beat your partner, well, you were going to be, you're fine in the community. You're probably not going to go up and beat somebody on the outside. So what goes on in the home stays in the home. And that was the thinking for a very long period of time. But then there was a recent study looking at spree killers. And they found that many of the spree killers were abusive partners. And so to look at this kind of abuse in the home from a different lens, that these people are violent, that they're out of control and dangerous. And it was interesting uh, that they focused on these spree killers and look back, how were they as husbands? How were they as, as fathers? And there's another case in my book where I called it the transference killer. This guy had this beautiful wife, beautiful life. He ends up killing his wife, getting away with it because it looked like an accident. Then he marries somebody who looked exactly like his first wife. Exactly. They almost look like twins. And he kills her, too. And the second time, he didn't get away with it. So when you use murder as a problem-solving solution, your mind has already gone there. There are no more boundaries. Like, that becomes a potential solution. So in that regard, yeah, I think these people can be dangerous because they probably will get married, and the rage will come up for them. And the potential to be dangerous is there. Robbie, I like to end, as I mentioned, uh, each talk on a note of optimism. Um, how would you combine uh, marriage, love, anger uh, into something positive uh, to end on? Well, I think if we expect it to be a norm but not a deal breaker – then mentally we will be prepared, you know, instead of being shocked. Oh, you know, marriage should be perfect. You should be happy every day. Uh, you know, I, I think for young couples, sharing the realities and offering tools and also helping people get the mental health treatment that they need as soon as they need it, you know, to take away the stigma because very often what I see in my own practice, and I have somebody who was dating somebody who was really lethal, you know, just teaching her just a few small ideas, you know, and now she's in a nice relationship with a dentist who's non-homicidal. So sometimes it just takes a little bit of information to set your life on a better path. Robbie, thank you. Okay, that ends uh, today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's episode. Our first speaker will be Martin Seligman, who runs the Positive Psychology Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Marty is one of the leaders of the new field of happiness and has written books on learned optimism, authentic happiness, and hope. He will be discussing his life work from his book, The Hope Circuit, 
Marty is one of the most important living psychologists and is the former president of the American Psychological Association. Our second speaker is my friend Michael Kahana, who is also a professor of psychology at UPenn. Michael studies memory, and I'm an investor in Michael's new venture, NIA, that helps people improve their memory. Michael has found a way to install a very small set of wires to key areas of the human brain that can be zapped with an electronic pulse when the individual enters a poor memory state. The results have been incredible, and his research may improve the lives of those with Alzheimer's, dementia, or anyone who has a poor memory. Our final speaker will be Jorge Castaneda, who is the former foreign minister for Mexico and previously ran for president of Mexico in 2006. Jorge is now a professor of political science at NYU and the recent author of the book entitled America Through Foreign Eyes. I expect to learn from Jorge about the view of America from senior government officials in Mexico. Jorge is an expert and historian in left-wing movements in Latin America, so I hope to find out what will happen in Cuba and Venezuela in the years ahead. If you are interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript of today, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you so much, and that ends today's program. Bye-bye.